Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. We are beginning today a new series that's going to take us through most of the summer, and it's through the book of 1 John, um, and I'll talk a little bit about that. It's really helpful to go through the book of a Bible, like, all the way through. I mean, most of us read the Bible a lot of times like a fortune cookie, right? Like, pop it open, find a verse, that works, right? This is a lot of the way that Americans read the Bible. I have my favorite verse, I just flip to it, I read the one verse, and it doesn't really matter what it says around or who it was written to and all that stuff. We read the Bible fairly irresponsibly, I think, a lot of times. So it's helpful to go all the way through a book of the Bible from verse to verse periodically just to remind ourselves again about how to read the Bible. So this summer we're going through 1 John, and, what, and it's a short book. What I want to encourage you is to take up a spiritual practice this summer of sitting down. It's going to take you like 10, 20 minutes if you're slow um, to read 1 John without stopping once a week. Okay? Like decide, hey, on Mondays, what I'm going to do is I'm going to sit down for 10 minutes, 20 if I'm slow, and, and I'm going to read 1 John all the way through. It's just five chapters, really fast. But what you'll discover as we do this, this series is going to be 11 weeks. As you do this, what you're going to discover is the things you saw first, you're going to see other things. And you're going to be able to start making associations at the beginning versus the end. Uh, and so just as a discipline, if you're like, hey, I really want to do something that would benefit me spiritually, just commit once a week at least to reading 1 John all the way through without stopping. Cool? This is me trying to pastorally help you. Okay? Fabulous? Are we excited? Four of you. Okay. That'll work. I'll take what I can get. Uh, have you ever played a game with a little kid? Like, I'm not talking like peekaboo age, right? Like, that's, that's one kind of game. But, you know, I'm thinking like, you know, four or five years old where they're old enough to know, you know, like I can, like the cards have numbers on them and we put them out and somebody wins. Or I pull the game board out and the pieces get put somewhere, right? Have you ever played this kind of game with a little kid? They understand enough that the, bo the board has to be set up, but they don't understand enough that there are rules that govern how the game is played. Have you ever played this game? So you, you start the game and there's one objective. And about two moves in, the kids change the game right? The objective becomes a different objective. And you're like, well, I was playing for this. And then a little bit later, the rules change again. And the whole name of the game is so that the kid wins, right? Have you played this game? If you've never played this game, it's an entertaining game. Um, sometimes you don't even know the rules have changed, right? <laughs> Those of you who have kids are like, yeah, I know, I know. Uh, it puts me in mind of, now, don't judge me on the, the movie reference that I'm about to make. It puts me in mind of uh, the movie Big Daddy. And, and there's this scene in Big Daddy where Rob Schneider's character and Adam Sandler's character, they're playing cards with Julian, who's the five-year-old kid, right? And Julian says, I have a, a, a five, a six, a king, and an ace. And he lays them down. And he says, I win. And Rob Schneider's character loses his mind right, and says things that I won't say because it ends up on the recording and because it's not nice of me to say, 
right? And he just gets really, really upset, and he says, there should be rules that govern the game. Same, different cards, he still wins. He says, what's the name of this game? He says, I win, right? And that's what it is a lot of times to play games with a kid. Much like playing a game with a little kid, though, frequently over the, the history of the church, we have done the same thing with Christian fellowship. That it began about grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That's how we began, and yet periodically, if you read church history, we change the nature of the game. We change the rules of the game. And we now make it about other things. Like, you know, it's like not grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. It's now Christ plus you have to be a Holy Spirit person who shakes. Or Christ plus you have to abstain from drinking alcohol. Christ plus you have to do this thing or not do that thing. Right? Or worse, we make it, let's just let go of Christ and we'll just say it's all about morality. Or it's all about my political persuasion, right? And we make fellowship based on something else. This has happened over and over and over. And if you look through church history, sometimes the shift is intentional. Sometimes people reject Christ on purpose. But a lot of times through church history, it's complacency. It's just the fact that we didn't tend to it. And didn't remind ourselves what the foundation of Christian fellowship is about. And so in that way, we're all a little bit at risk for this. Today we're going to begin this series through the book of 1 John that we're calling Love and Truth. 1 John is often called a letter, but as you read it, you'll discover it doesn't really read like a letter. It's not clearly written to somebody from somebody. It reads a lot more as if I had handed you my sermon manuscript and said, here, read this. It's a lot more like a sermon manuscript. And it's written by the Apostle John, who's writing to a group of house churches who, interestingly enough, have just gone through a church split. So if you think church splits are 21st century problems, think again. They are first century problems. This church had just gone through a split where a group of people had left uh, and moved the central focus of Christian fellowship to something other than Jesus. Now, this is a crucial piece of information that will guide us the whole way through. If you don't understand that this is written to address a church split by heretics, if you don't understand that, you'll read this and it'll be confusing. And you'll go, well, he says this here, but then he says the opposite thing here, and it doesn't really make sense. You have to understand what's happening around and so the, the piece of information is John is writing to, to address this false teaching that these heretics had put into the church, and he's addressing to stabilize the remaining church. He's writing these people and saying, hold on, in the wake of this split, we need to get on the same page. I hope you guys don't go with them. This is the tenor of this letter. And he's addressing all the teaching. And so what I want to leave you with today, the, the point that I want to make today as we get started in this series is that Christian fellowship is based entirely on faith in Jesus. That Christian fellowship is based entirely on faith in Jesus. Today's message is called Jesus at the Center. And I want to thank the worship team for playing that song because it's just, I love that song anyway. But it's, it's the title of this message, Jesus at the Center. Let's pray and then we're going to look at scripture. So Lord, I do just welcome you into this time and into this message. 
And God, I come um, just aware of my own biases and my own desires and my own even desire, Lord, to create you in my image. And so, Lord, I submit myself to your word. God, we submit this time to your word. And Lord, I pray that by the power of the Spirit, you would shape us. That as we discover things that are so foundational to faith in Jesus, Lord, that you would meet us. And I pray, God, that you would give us intimacy and fellowship with you and with one another. Lord, would you put power on this message? Give me your words. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're going to look at 1 John. If you don't know where it is, your Bible should look like this. It should be really hard to leave it open. It's all the way at the end, 1 John. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles on, on either side. You can grab one. We're going to look at 1 John, beginning in chapter 1 and verse 1. And here's what we read. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. John starts with a very descriptive statement. It's sort of like this cinematic unveiling, right? He's talking sort of in these nebulous terms, and who is it he's talking about? And at the end, it's Jesus that he's talking about. He's building this, this picture of Jesus. And at the same time, he's trying to hold two realities in tension with one another. On the one hand, he says, Jesus is the eternal word of life. Jesus, there's never been a time that Jesus didn't exist. He is God incarnate. He has always been and he will always be. God is entirely spirit, and so Jesus, on the one hand, is spirit, and at the same time, he says this. If I'll read this again. Pay attention to the, uh, just how physical this is. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. And we have seen it. So he's saying, yes, at one time he is the eternal word of life. He is spirit. God is spirit. And on the other hand, he says, and Jesus is fully human. We saw him. We heard him. We touched him. And what John is saying is Jesus is fully God and fully man at the same time. It's a foundational Christian belief that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And what may strike you as odd, though, is that John would have to say this to a group of Christians. He's not writing to lost people. He's writing to Christians. Here's why he does that. After the heretical group left, John wrote this to relay the foundation. He's building a foundation again. And this statement, John starts right off in direct rebuttal of those who left. John is trying to make sure to correct any false teaching that may remain in the, in the church. And the teaching that the church, the, those who left uh, 
were propagating was what theologians have come to term Gnosticism. I'm not going to go deep into what Gnosticism is. This is, uh, I would recommend a book. I couldn't recommend uh, this book more highly. Derek Morphew's book called The Spiritual Spiderweb, A Study in Ancient and Contemporary Gnosticism. Should be a picture of it right up there. It's available on Kindle. If you want to understand, and I would say as a follower of Jesus, just from one follower of Jesus to another, it's really important to understand the pitfalls that we may fall into. Gnosticism shows up early on in the, in the second century and incipient forms that he's talking about here, but we still, there's still tendency toward it. You, and if you read the book and you sort of understand what it is, you'll discover where the pitfalls are. But to sum it up here, the false belief was that Gnostics and people who propagate this teaching elevated the spiritual above the physical. So the spiritual is good, the physical is bad. So the goal of any faith for a Gnostic would be to escape the physical and become entirely spiritual. It would be to go be a spiritual being in heaven. If this sounds like your Christian faith, let's have a conversation. That's not actually what the early Christians were talking about. The goal of Gnostics was to escape physicality and become entirely spiritual. So the idea that God would leave this spiritual realm and become physical, which is bad, is entirely unconceivable. Like, this is, this is nonsense. There's no way. So these teachers rejected that Jesus had ever come in the flesh. And they came up with all kinds of alternative ways to, to talk about Jesus. But in essence, what the false teachers were saying is that they had revelation from the Spirit that they didn't have to have anything to do with Jesus to have fellowship with God. They had revelation from the Spirit that they didn't have to have anything to do with Jesus to have fellowship with God. We'll touch that one again in a minute. In response, John says, no, Jesus is the eternally existent Word of God. He is Spirit and He is flesh. Jesus has come in the flesh, that he was born, lived, was crucified and resurrected in actual flesh. And then he doesn't just clarify the error. Look at verse 3 again. He says, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. What John is saying here is that all true Christian fellowship is based on Jesus. You can't have God without Jesus. There's no such thing. That's what he starts with. And at this point, I maybe should clarify what we mean by fellowship. Like, when I say that word, what do most of you think about? A fellowship hall, right? What is that? Pizza, right? Anybody think of a fellowship hall? Like, It's the building in the church that everybody eats at, right? Or when I was growing up, it's the building in the church that has the basketball court, except for the room's not big enough for the basketball court. Like, and that's where, where we eat, right? This is the fellowship hall, right? But that's not what what really is implied here. The Greek word here is koinonia. Some of you may have heard that word. It's not a spiritual word. It's not like Christians like made this word koinonia. It's like a a, a secular word. And in a purely secular sense, it conveys this idea of partnership to a goal. Partnership to some goal. 
So, for example, let me sort of try to illustrate this a little bit. Some of you are familiar with the Mountain Lion Backpack Program, right? You've heard of this? The Mountain Lion Backpack Program, amazing program. The goal of the Mountain Lion Backpack Program is to find the kids who are at risk of not eating on the weekends when they go home from school, and they send them home with a backpack full of food so that when they come back to school on Monday, they didn't skip meals for days. They have eaten, and they're actually well-nourished. This is a, a noble cause. This is a noble pursuit. And the Mountain Lion Backpack Program recruits churches. says, hey, would you help us do this? Would you either help us pack bags, or would you help us deliver the bags to the schools? And this is a noble thing, right? And I think this is something Jesus would care about, is feeding hungry people, right? This is koinonia in a purely secular sense. It's partnership for a specific goal. And this happens all over the place, but what John is talking about is not primarily partnership towards a specific goal. It's sort of there. You could make the case that Christian fellowship is partnership toward a specific goal. You could say that. But what John is actually talking about here is this deep sense of intimacy and communion. That Christian fellowship is a deep sense of intimacy and communion. You see, Christian fellowship is something that starts with the Father and the Son. You know, we don't make this up. As Christians, we don't make up fellowship. Like, we don't make up Christian fellowship. This is God's idea. That the Father and Son are in perfect koinonia. They're in perfect intimate communion with one another. And they invite us into it. So as the church, what we do is we participate with something that's already happening. That's what it is to be in Christian fellowship. We participate in something that's already happening. And the way we get invited in is through the death of Jesus on the cross. That's why we do communion every week here. Because what I want you to understand every single week is that this body of people doesn't exist if Jesus didn't die for us. That's the point. This fellowship that we participate in is not our idea. It's God's idea. And it's bought by the, the death of Jesus. But there's another reason that we do this every week. The other reason that we do this every week is not just so that we can remember that I am in fellowship with the Father and the Son and you are in fellowship. We do it all together on purpose to realize that we are in fellowship with one another. That we have been collectively invited into this intimacy with God. That it's a collective thing. There's no such thing in the Bible as Christianity that's done on your own. It's all collective. The significance here is that Jesus is the only basis for Christian fellowship. And this is at the same time exclusive and inclusive. If you've ever shared your faith with somebody, don't, isn't one of the, the, the sort of pushbacks you get is, Christianity, it's so exclusive. You say you have to come through Jesus. Like, it's so exclusive. Have you ever heard that one? Christianity, it's so, so exclusive. Why can't everybody be a little bit right? It's exclusive in the sense that there's literally no other way into the intimate fellowship with the Father and the Son but through Jesus. We didn't make that up. Jesus did. 
You can come sit in the rows here and hang out and, and do all the things that we do, but intimacy with God is something that God created. And he says the only way in is through Jesus. And so that's, that's automatically exclusive, and yet at the same time, it's radically inclusive. Let me, let me show you why. It's inclusive because as long as the basis for Christian fellowship is Jesus Christ, as long as that's the basis, everything else is open for discussion. As long as the basis, and we'll talk about what that means as far as morality and things like that and sin next week. But as Jesus is the center, what that automatically means is that the church should be radically diverse. Because if our fellowship is only based on Jesus, if our communion with one another is only based on Jesus, then a lot of the preferences that we elevate to the level of fellowship kind of fade away, don't they? I mean, Revelation talks about a body of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, right? That's automatically diverse. And when I say diverse, immediately what we think is, well, racially diverse. And yes, that's true. But the body of Christ also should be socioeconomically diverse. If the only thing that matters for Christian fellowship is Jesus himself, what that means is our financial status is not elevated to the level of fellowship. We can have fellowship with people who don't make as much money as we do or who make more money than we do. But it's not just racial and socioeconomic. It's also uh, politically diverse. It's also politically diverse. If the thing that matters the most in Christian fellowship is Jesus, King Jesus, and nothing rises to the level in our fellowship as of King Jesus, everything else is subjugated to that. What ought to happen is this room should be full of people who believe different things politically. I'm not saying Jesus doesn't inform your politics, but what I am saying is we can have fellowship with people who have different political beliefs. But not only racially, not only socioeconomically, not only politically, but the church should be generationally diverse. That if we never elevate anything above Jesus, what holds us together then is only Jesus, which means kids can have fellowship with older people. Right? Do you see how this works? And everywhere this breaks down, everywhere this breaks down where we elevate any one thing above Jesus for the sake of our fellowship, or anywhere we add anything to Jesus for the sake of fellowship, what happens is the church is deficient. Where you find churches that are like, I mean, I've had a lot of conversations where you find churches that are like, we're getting old, there's no young people, we don't really know what to do. We're going to have to close eventually. No young people will come here. The question I would ask is, is Jesus at the center of your fellowship? Jesus at the center of your fellowship. Because if Jesus is not at the center of your fellowship, then you're holding something else that makes you comfortable as the center. And it's not very attractive. Let me ask you this. If it's all young people, there's no old people who are part of your fellowship. Probably the thing that's happening is we've elevated something else to at least the level of Jesus. And we've said, these people don't fit here. 
But if the only thing we hold as central is Jesus, it's automatically attractive and compelling. We never hold our preferences above Jesus or even close. See, what should happen is that people should look at the church and say, how did you get this group of people together? Like, how did you, you've got old people, you've got young people, you've got kids, you've got white people, you've got black people, you've got Asian people, you've got Latino people, you have rich people, you have poor people, you have business owners and beggars. How did you get this body of people together? God must surely be among you. Because there's nothing else that we've ever tried that has ever gotten these people to love each other. We ought to be the people who demonstrate to the world what it looks like to be united. And the only way that happens is Jesus is at the center. We put nothing else at the center. We elevate nothing else to the level of Jesus. And a fellowship like this naturally grows. It's naturally expansive. Most of you know about St. Patrick's Day, right? Anybody not know of St. Patrick's Day? Okay, cool. You know, it's not just a day to drink green beer, right? Or to dye the lake green or whatever else people do. Do you know why there's a day in honor of St. Patrick? That's sort of a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer it. Let me tell you why there's a day in honor of St. Patrick. See, St. Patrick got credited as evangelizing all of Ireland, And there's a really good book that I made required reading for anybody who wanted to move here to plant the church with us. The book is called The Celtic Way of Evangelism. It's by uh, George G. Hunter III. And it outlines why it is that St. Patrick got credited with evangelizing all of Ireland. Essentially what St. Patrick did was he took these fellowships of Christians that held Jesus as the center. This is the, the galvanizing piece of our fellowship And he planted these little fellowships on the edge of town. So he showed up in the edge of town, had a group of people. They loved one another. They held Jesus in high esteem. Jesus was the center of the community. And then those people went into town. And they did business in town. And they bought things in town. And they they interacted with the people in the towns. And then they invited these people. Hey, we're having dinner out here. Why Why don't you come join us? And you don't have to bring anything. It's all free. Just... Just come. We're just going to hang out, you know. We're going to play games, board games by, built by a five-year-old. We're going to play games, right? And we're going we're gonna to probably pray, but, like, why don't you just come and be a part of our fellowship? And what happened is people got invited into the fellowship before they believed in this Jesus that all of these people worshipped. And over time, what they discovered was this is the way life ought to work. And so eventually what happened is the town became majority Christian. They would give their lives to Jesus. And so then they would grab 30 of those people, send them up to the next town, plant a little community on the edge of town, you know, wash, rinse, and repeat, right? Over and over and over, and in a period of time, the nation of Ireland, or the the state, I don't know, in that time what it was called, state, nation, Ireland, that place was led to Jesus By this process, Christian fellowship that's truly centered on Jesus is naturally compelling. Look at verse 3 again. So we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this 
to make our joy complete. John is addressing this church, and what he's doing is he's sort of giving them an evangelistic message. He's saying, if you will hold tight to faith in Jesus, if you will hold tight to the fact that Jesus was born, lived, was crucified, and raised again, if you will hold tight to this faith, then we have fellowship with one another. And you can tell he's sort of desperate. I'm writing you this so that you, my joy will be complete. What he's saying is, I deeply love you guys, and I'm terrified that you're going to wander off from the fellowship. And you can, he's sort of preaching this evangelistic message to these guys. He's making an evangelistic invitation. Proclamation of this gospel is an invitation to fellowship. You know, so much of the way we understand evangelism is so misguided. We have this idea that we have to win an argument, convince somebody to make some intellectual decision and cross a line, you know, and so when we imagine about how that works, you know, it's like, well, I got to, I'm making a decision here today at church, I'm going to go, I'm going to share my faith, and automatically you think that that's some person you don't know, right? Like, you're just sort of like this nameless, faceless person, I, I'm going to I'm going to hook up and convince them about Jesus, and I'm going to get them to pray a prayer and cross a line. And, and, and I think, you know, a lot of times it's sort of like tied to this idea of like, I don't want them to go to hell, so I'm going to do this so they don't go to hell. And so there's all this guilt and shame, and if we can overcome that, we go out and we tell somebody about Jesus, and it feels like a cat's tail stapled on a dog, right? It's just, it's just weird. What are you doing? But what John is demonstrating is something different. And I think there are a few things, a couple things that we can learn from this. The first thing I think we can learn from this is by paying attention to the audience John has in mind. John has a specific audience in mind. It's not some nameless, faceless person out somewhere. It's these people who he deeply loves and deeply cares for. And he says, oh, that you would be in fellowship with us. I desperately desire you to be in fellowship with us. Like, when you think about sharing your faith with somebody, who do you think about? Like, some of us probably think of the nameless, faceless person, right? I'm going to go and stand out in front of sheets and just whoever comes by as they're carrying out their MTO and their, you know, are there two hot dogs for a dollar? As long as there's still a dollar, who knows? Everything else goes up. Maybe it's two hot dogs more. But, like, we're standing out. We're just going to. We're going to ambush him and tell him about Jesus and try to make a cut, right? Some of us think of that. And you can imagine how intimidating it is to think about trying to lead somebody to Jesus that you don't already know. Or maybe some of us think about the lost people that we encounter in public places, right? Like, so now you've gone inside to pay for your hot dogs, and, you know, they have to wear the name tag, and so, you know, you're going to be winsome Christian and go, hey, Brian. And he's like, do I know you? Like, no, but you have a name tag on. Right? Or, 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 you know, and there's the line behind you, and, and everybody's like, come on, I gotta get going. And you're like, well, has anybody ever talked to you about Jesus? I mean, do you, it's weird, right? Like, it's like, this feels awkward, and I don't know what to do with that. Or you, you have like the server experience, right? Like, they come up, hi, I'm Miranda, I'll be taking care of you today. Can I get your drinks? Hi, Miranda. My name is Derek. I just want to talk to you about Jesus. Of course, Miranda's trying to get a good tip. Is she willing to say, you're going, oh, yeah, mm -hmm. you know, whatever you bigger check, please, right? And even that's a little bit weird. Like, it's these people that we don't exactly know, but we pretend like we know. 
because society forces it on us. Or some of us think about, and this is a, maybe a step forward, some of us think about those people that we work with or the people that we have uh, in our classes or the, the people who live in our neighborhoods or next door to us or the people in our families. And typically when we think about those people and the lost ones, it's the people who irritate us, right? Because clearly they don't know Jesus because they don't love me, right? Isn't that the way we think about it? Like, that guy, he's a jerk. He's got to be lost, right? Do you think that way? Right? So we want to share Jesus with these people because clearly they're lost. And uh, have you ever had, <laughs> funny, have you ever had the opportunity to, to go, I'm going to go share Jesus with that jerk that I work with who uh, is clearly lost? And you start to talk about your faith and they're like, oh, I'm a Christian. And you're like, <laughs> oops. <laughs> have you ever had that? Like, that's a weird experience too. Right? It's better, but it's still a little bit difficult to imagine how we might lead somebody like that to Jesus. But then there's these people that we love, right? For those of you who are parents of, uh, of little kids, you're like, man, I just desperately hope that my kids grow up to know Jesus. Or maybe you're a parent of an adult kid and you're like, they're far from Jesus and I don't know if they're ever coming back. We raised them in church, we prayed for them, and we tried to do the right things and I don't know if they're gonna ever find their way back to Jesus. Or maybe it's a parent, you have a parent who just wants nothing to do with it, and everything in you wants to have fellowship with that person. Most often, evangelism happens in this space because God has given you this heart. He has given you his heart for these people, and you love them, and you care for them, and you desperately want them to have fellowship with God. That's where evangelism happens most of the time. And you might ask, well, what about the rest of the people? Are we just supposed to Ignore them? Neglect them? What do we do about that? Absolutely not. I think the way forward for us is not that we go ambush people. Certainly if God gives you an opportunity to share faith, you do it. But I think the way forward is you talk to God about people before you talk to people about God. I think you make a list of the people that you desperately want to, to love and you want to have a heart for and you want them to know Jesus but they irritate you or they get on your nerves and you put it on your bathroom mirror or someplace you're going to see it. And every day you pray for those people. Every day you pray for those people. And it's not just like, God, I'm praying for that jerk that gets on my nerves. Right? I mean, maybe it starts there. But you pray prayers like, God, would you strengthen their marriage? God, would you raise their kids to be healthy? God, would you give them just great favor in their jobs. God, they're selling their house and would you just give them great favor in selling their house and, and that they would get enough money for the next thing that they're going to do. Would you, would you give them favor? God, would you give me your heart for them? Would you help me to actually love them like you love them? You begin to pray prayers like that. And you pray prayers like, God, if there are beliefs that they have about you that are false, would you begin to just reveal those to them? And Lord, would you give me an opportunity to share what I so desperately love about you and that I want to invite them into? Would you give me that opportunity? We begin to pray for those people. Because here's the deal. We can create all kinds of methods and all kinds of programs and all kinds of things, right? We're going to do Alpha in the fall. 
We can create all kinds of ways for us to share faith with people, but the fact of the matter is if you don't have God's heart for somebody who's far from him, it's going to be inauthentic, it's going to be rude, maybe hateful. But if you, if you have God's heart for them and you love them the way that Jesus loves them, that's where the, the, the real stuff of evangelism happens. And it's critical, really, for the second thing that I want you to notice about what John demonstrates to us regarding evangelism. The second thing that I think we can learn here is that evangelism is not arguing somebody down. It's not trying to get them to cross some intellectual line. It's inviting them into the fellowship we enjoy with the Father and the Son. That's evangelism. It's, hey, I have found this fellowship that's so amazing and that I don't belong, I don't deserve to belong to. And I want you to have that. One, one person described it as one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. It's like, I just want you to know about this. And it's an invitation into relationship. It's an invitation into fellowship with the Father, the Son, and ourselves. You see, there's all this evangelism that happens. It's like, you know, I'm going to walk around the street, and I'm going to try to get you to cross a line, and I finally get you to pray a prayer, and you're like, God bless, have a great day. And I mark it down and say, I led somebody to Jesus. And meanwhile, this person wanders around, and it's like, I prayed this prayer, but it doesn't feel like it's doing anything. I don't know if this matters. And then they walk away, and they discover that they're not different, and they discover that maybe Christianity just doesn't work. But that's not the intent. In the Bible, the way, the way evangelism works is it's an invitation into fellowship with us. That when we lead somebody into relationship with Jesus, we're actually leading them also into relationship with ourselves. You see, the Bible says make disciples. It doesn't say make converts. And discipleship is something we do life on life. That when we lead somebody to Jesus, if they're not already our friend, we are now friends. We are now brothers and sisters. You know, it's one of the things, and I've, some of you know this, but this is just truth-telling time for me. One of the things that I wrestle with a lot is the way that we market the church. We advertise the church. And I've had this conversation with some of you, and I'd be happy to have it with others of you if you want to get coffee. Um, but I have a hard time with this idea of marketing of the church. Like, we, we've got to advertise it and, and make sure that we promote we got to get the right pictures and put them at the right angle and all the things and I understand in our culture there's like reasons to do it and and so I've sort of made peace with some of the ways that we kind of have to do certain things oh we're advertising parents night out we people aren't going to find out about it if we you know we want to serve you it's not a trick we want to love you and serve you so you should come so I've made peace with it but one of the reasons I struggle with advertising and marketing of the church so much it's because I truly believe that the body of Christ is intended to be entirely relational. That I truly believe the way this is supposed to grow is not that we did some marketing ploy to get you to come here, but we actually love you. It's hard to imagine, right? That we actually do love you and want you to be here. That we actually do want you to be in this fellowship that we're in. I actually believe that's the way the church is supposed to work. And so when we advertise the church, we market the church, what ends up happening is we cut off the relational component, right? 
and we put out the best advertisement and the best pictures. And what we hope is that you'll come and join us at one of our things. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be amazing. You're going to come here and you show up. And we sure hope that the product met the advertisement, right? Or it's false advertising. So we really hope that you get here and the, the worship is amazing. And we really hope that the preaching's not too bad, right, so that you'll stay long enough, and we really hope that our youth program is good enough that you'll stay, and our kids program is good enough that you'll stay, and we have enough of the right program so that you'll keep coming back. And a secondary, maybe, consideration is that we would be relationally connected to one another and the Father and the Son. It sort of relegates this idea of relationship to something less than. And that's the struggle that I have, because what it means is that people show up to churches automatically postured as consumers. We're automatically postured to evaluate whether or not this meets my needs, and maybe relationship will come. But if it doesn't, as long as you keep coming back and you keep writing checks, we can keep doing the thing, right? I have a hard time with that because I so believe that this is supposed to be koinonia, intimate communion with one another and the Father and the Son. It's what I believe this is supposed to be. I want you to consider a biblical alternative. What if the whole thing, what if this whole thing was all about fellowship? What if this whole thing was all about relationship with one another and with God? And what if this whole thing was about bringing people, inviting other people into relationship with ourselves and with God? What if that's the whole, the whole deal? And that as people give their lives to Jesus and we baptize people, we all collectively celebrate because we love these people. What if that's what this is? I mean, can you imagine the first century church trying to like market the product? Hey, come to this other guy's house. I mean, that's weird, right? Hey, we're going to go meet in the temple, but not in the real part. We're going to meet outside a little bit because they don't want us in there. But come. We'll meet all your needs. You know, Acts is like and people dare not join them. I, part of it's probably just because it's so weird. And yet, over and over and over, the church grew so fast. Why? Not because it had great pro programs and great marketing. It grew so fast because of the intimacy of communion. That people actually had intimate relationship with God and with a body of people. That they actually gained family. When they came into the church, they gained family. Can you imagine what that would look like? And that evangelism in our case would look like People that we've been praying for coming in and being part of our family. Can you imagine that? Like, think about what if, that, what if that's all it's about. What if it doesn't matter how many people you can get through the door, it matters how many people are intimately connected to you. We'd probably be deeply concerned about those that are disconnected, wouldn't we? Let me make two points real quick and we'll end think if this was all evangelism was about, was about inviting people into the intimacy that we have with God, I think it would challenge us on two fronts. 
The first one is that I think it would challenge us to live deeply into fellowship with God and his church. The second challenge is I think it would call us to live deeply into intimacy with people who are not yet here. And here's why I think that's challenging. It would require us to intentionally look at ourselves and evaluate ourselves for these things. And what I think we might find, and maybe we're scared to find, is that one of these two things or both are deficient. Maybe as we start to look, we discover we don't actually have this deep intimacy with the Father and the Son, this koinonia that, that John is talking about. Maybe we discover we don't actually have that. And worse, maybe we discover we don't actually want it. Or maybe we think we're very loving and caring towards people. And, and so, but as we begin to look at it, we discover we actually don't care about people nearly as much as we say we do. And I think this would be a really challenging space for us, but I think it would be a healthy space. I would say the second of those automatically proceeds from the first. I think if you discover deep intimacy with God, which is why we did the Hungry for God series, see it's all connected. If you actually discover deep intimacy with God, you're automatically propelled by the Spirit for those that he's after. I don't think you have to manufacture that. I think it's a product of the first. But what if we became these kinds of people? What if we became the kinds of people who deeply fellowshiped with the Lord and deeply fellowshiped with other people? What if that was what we were known for? What if we trained ourselves to be naturally invitational of those who are not yet in our fellowship? Can you imagine what that would look like? can imagine a day where there's so many people who are like, I thought the church was about judgmentalism. But what I have discovered is you have invited me into a relationship with the real God. The real God who gave his son for me. Who passionately pursued me. I think we would make, I think that would become the story. I think we would have people all across this city who would discover that what they thought it was was not what it was. You want to transform a city. I think that's the way you do it. What if that's what it's actually about? I think that's what John's talking about here. The center of all Christian fellowship is intimacy with Jesus. Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.